The Thames Valley Catastrophe by Grant Allen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ed Humple. The Thames Valley Catastrophe by Grant Allen. It can scarcely be necessary for me to mention, I suppose, at this time of day, that I was one of the earliest and fullest observers of the sad series of events which finally brought about the transference of the seat of government of these islands from London to Manchester. Nor need I allude here to the conspicuous position which my narrative naturally occupies in the Blue Book on the Thames Valley Catastrophe, Volume 2, Part 7, ordered by Parliament in its preliminary session under the new regime at Birmingham. But I think it also incumbent upon me, for the benefit of posterity, to supplement that necessarily dry and formal statement by a more circumstantial account of my personal adventures during the terrible period. I am aware, of course, that my poor little story can possess little interest for our contemporaries, wearied out as they are with details of the disaster, and surfeited with tedious scientific discussions as to its origin and nature. But in after years, I venture to believe, when the crowning calamity of the nineteenth century has grown picturesque and, so to speak, ivy-clad, by reason of its remoteness, like the great plague or the great fire of London with ourselves, the world may possibly desire to hear how this unparalleled convulsion affected the feelings and the fortunes of a single family in the middle rank of life, and in a part of London neither squalid nor fashionable. It is such personal touches of human nature that give reality to history, which without them must become, as a great writer has finely said, nothing more than an old almanac. I shall not apologize, therefore, for being frankly egoistic and domestic in my reminiscences of that appalling day, for I know that those who desire to seek scientific information on the subject will look for it, not in vain, in the eight bulky volumes of the recent Blue Book. I shall concern myself here with the great event merely as it appeared to myself, a government servant of the second grade, and in its relations to my own wife, my home, and my children. On the morning of 21st August, in the memorable year of the calamity, I happened to be at Cookham, a pleasant and pretty village which then occupied the western bank of the Thames just below the spot where the lookout tower of the earthquake and eruption department now dominates the whole wide plain of the glassy rock desert. In place of the black lake of basalt, which young people see nowadays winding its solid bays in and out among the grassy downs, most men still living can well remember a gracious and smiling valley, threaded in the midst of a beautiful river. I had cycled down from London the evening before, thus forestalling my holiday, and had spent the night at a tolerable inn in the village. By a curious coincidence, the only other visitor at the little hotel that night was a fellow cyclist, an American, George W. Ward by name, who had come over with his wheel, as he called it, for six weeks in England, in order to investigate the geology of our southern counties for himself, and to compare it with that of the far western Cretaceous system. I venture to describe this, as a curious coincidence, 
because, as it happened, the mere accident of my meeting him gave me the first inkling of the very existence of that singular phenomenon of which we were all so soon to receive a startling example. I had never so much as heard before of fissure eruptions, and if I had not heard of them from Ward that evening, I might not have recognized at sight the actuality when it first appeared, and therefore I might have been involved in the general disaster. In which case, of course, this unpretentious narrative would never have been written. As we sat in the little parlor of the White Hart, however, over our evening pipe, it chanced that the American, who was a pleasant, conversable fellow, began talking to me of his reasons for visiting England. I was at that time a clerk in the general post office, of which I am now secretary, and was then no student of science, but his enthusiastic talk about his own country and its vastness amused and interested me. He had been employed for some years on the geological survey of the western states, and he was deeply impressed by the solemnity and the colossal scale of everything American. Mountains, he said, when I spoke of Scotland. Why, for mountains your Alps aren't in it, and as for volcanoes your Vesuviuses and Etnas just spit fire a bit at infrequent intervals, while ours do things on a scale worthy of a great country. I can tell you, Europe is a circumstance. America is a continent. But surely, I objected, that was a pretty fair eruption that destroyed Pompeii. The American rose and surveyed me slowly. I can see him to this day with his close-shaven face and his contemptuous smile at my European ignorance. Well, he said, after a long and impressive pause, the lava flood that destroyed a few acres about the Bay of Naples was what we call a trickle. It came from a crater, and the crater it came from was nothing more than a small round vent hole. The lava flowed down from it in a moderate stream over a limited area. But what do you say to the earth opening in a huge crack, forty or fifty miles long, say, as far as from here right away to London, or further, and lava pouring out from the orifice, not in a little rivulet, as at Etna or Vesuvius, but in a sea or inundation, which spread at once over a tract as big as England? That's something like volcanic action, isn't it? And that's the sort of thing we have out in Colorado. You are joking, I replied or bragging. You are trying to astonish me with a familiar spread eagle. He smiled a quiet smile. Not a bit of it, he answered. What I tell you is at least as true as gospel. The earth yawns in Montana. There are fissure eruptions, as we call them, in the western states, out of which the lava has welled like wine out of a broken skin welled up in vast roaring floods, molten torrents of basalt, many miles across, and spread like water over whole plains and valleys. Not within historical times, I exclaimed. I'm not so sure about that, he answered, musing. I grant you not within times which are historical right now, for Colorado is a very new country. But I incline to think some of the most recent fissure eruptions took place not later than when the Tudors reigned in England. The lava oozed out, red-hot, gushed out, was squeezed out, and spread instantly everywhere. It's so comparatively recent that the surface of the rock is still bare in many parts, unweathered sufficiently to support vegetation. 
I fancy the stream must have been ejected at a single burst, in a huge white-hot dome, and then flowed down on every side, filling up the valleys to a certain level, in and out among the hills, exactly as water might do. And some of these eruptions, I tell you, by measured survey, would have covered more ground than from Dover to Liverpool, and from York to Cornwall. Let us be thankful, I said, carelessly, that such things don't happen in our own times. He eyed me curiously. Haven't happened, you mean, he answered. We have no security that they mayn't happen tomorrow. These fissure eruptions, though not historically described for us, are common events in geological history, commoner and on a larger scale in America than elsewhere. Still, they have occurred in all lands and at various epochs. There is no reason at all why one shouldn't occur in England at present. I laughed and shook my head. I had an Englishman's firm conviction, so rudely shattered by the subsequent events, but then so universal, that nothing very unusual ever happened in England. Next morning I rose early, bathed in Odney Weir, a picturesque pool close by, breakfasted with the American, then wrote a hasty line to my wife, informing her that I should probably sleep that night at Oxford, for I was off on a few days' holiday, and I liked Ethel to know where a letter or telegram would reach me each day, as we were both a little anxious about the baby's teething. Even while I pen these words now, the grim humor of the situation comes back to me vividly. Thousands of fathers and mothers were anxious that morning about similar trifles, whose pettiness was brought home to them with an appalling shock in the all-embracing horror of that day's calamity. About ten o'clock I inflated my tires and got under way. I meant to ride toward Oxford by a leisurely and circuitous route, along the windings of the river, past Marlow and Henley, and so I began by crossing Cookham Bridge, a wooden or iron structure, I scarcely remember which. It spanned the Thames close by the village. The curious will find its exact position marked in the maps of the period. In the middle of the bridge I paused and surveyed that charming prospect, which I was the last of living men, perhaps, to see it as it then existed. Close by stood a weir. Beside it the stream divided into three separate branches, exquisitely backed up by the gentle green slopes of Hedser and Cliveden. I could never pass that typical English view without a glance of admiration. This morning I pulled up my bicycle for a moment and cast my eye downstream with more than my usual enjoyment of the smooth blue water and the tall white poplars whose leaves showed their gleaming silver in the breeze beside it. I might have gazed at it too long, and one minute more would have sufficed for my destruction, had not a cry from the towpath a little farther up attracted my attention. It was a wild, despairing cry, like that of a man being overpowered and murdered. I am confident this was my first intimation of danger. Two minutes before, it is true, I had heard a faint sound like a distant rumbling of thunder, but nothing else. I am one of those who strenuously maintain that the catastrophe was not heralded by shocks of earthquake. For an opposite opinion, see Dr. Hay Withers' evidence in Volume 3 of the Blue Book. I turned my eye upstream. For half a second I was utterly bewildered. Strange to say, I did not perceive at first the great flood of fire that was advancing toward me. 
I saw only the man who had shouted, a miserable, cowering, terror-stricken wretch, one of the abject creatures who used to earn a dubious livelihood in those days when the river was a boulevard of pleasure by towing boats upstream. But now he was rushing wildly forward, with panic in his face. I could see he looked as if close pursued by some wild beast behind him. A mad dog, I said to myself at the onset, or else a bull in the meadow. I glanced back to see what his pursuer might be, but then, in one second, the whole horror and terror of the catastrophe burst upon me. Its whole horror and terror, I say, but not yet its magnitude. I was aware at first just of a moving red wall, like dull, red-hot molten metal. Trying to recall it at so safe a distance in time and space, the feelings of the moment and the way in which they surged and succeeded one another, I think I can recollect that my earliest idea was no more than this. He must run, or the moving wall will overtake him. Next instant a hot wave seemed to strike my face. It was just like a blast of heat that strikes one in a glasshouse when you stand in front of the boiling and seething glass in the furnace. At about the same point in time I was aware, I believe, that the dull red wall was really a wall of fire, but it was cooled by contact with the air and the water. Even as I looked, however, a second wave from behind seemed to rush on and break. It overlaid and outran the first one. This second wave was white, not red. At white heat, I realized. Then, with a burst of recognition, I knew what it all meant. What Ward had spoken of last night. A fissure eruption. I looked back. Ward was coming toward me on the bridge, mounted on his Columbia. Too speechless to utter one word, I pointed upstream with my hand. He nodded and shouted back, in a singularly calm voice, Yes, just what I told you, a fissure eruption. They were the last words I heard him speak. Not that he appreciated the danger less than I did, though his manner was cool. But he was wearing no clips to his trousers, and in that critical moment he caught his leg in his pedals. The accident disconcerted him. He dismounted hurriedly, and then, panic-stricken, as I judged, abandoned his machine. He tried to run. The error was fatal. He tripped and fell. What became of him afterward I will mention later. But for the moment I saw only the poor wretch on the towpath. He was not a hundred yards off, just beyond the little bridge which led over the opening to a private boathouse. But as he rushed forwards and shrieked, the wall of fire overtook him. I do not think it quite caught him. It is hard at such moments to judge what really happens but I believe I saw him shrivel like a moth in a flame a few seconds before the advancing wall of fire swept over the boathouse. I have seen an insect shrivel just so when flung into the midst of white-hot coals. He seemed to go off in gas, leaving a shower of powdery ash to represent his bones behind him. But of this I do not pretend to be positive. I will allow that my own agitation was far too profound to permit of my observing anything with accuracy. How high was the wall at this time? This has been much debated. I should guess thirty feet, though it rose afterwards to more than two hundred, and it advanced rather faster than a man could run down the center of the valley. Later on, its pace accelerated greatly with subsequent outbursts. In frantic haste, I saw or felt that only one chance of safety lay before me. I must strike uphill, 
by the field path to Hedser. I rode for very life, with grim death behind me. Once well across the bridge, and turning up the hill, I saw Ward on the parapet, with his arms flung up, trying wildly to save himself by leaping into the river. Next instant he shriveled, I think, as the beggar had shriveled, and it is to this complete combustion before the lava flood reached them that I attribute the circumstance, so much commented upon in the scientific excavations among the ruins, that no casts of dead bodies, like those at Pompeii, have anywhere been found in the Thames Valley desert. My own belief is that every human body was reduced to a gaseous condition by the terrific heat several seconds before the molten basalt reached it. Even at the distance which I had now attained from the central mass, indeed, the heat was intolerable. Yet, strange to say, I saw few or no people flying as yet from the inundation. The fact is, the eruption came upon us so suddenly, so utterly, without warning or premonitory symptoms, for I deny the earthquake shocks, that whole towns must have been destroyed before the inhabitants were aware that anything out of the common was happening. It is a sort of alleviation to the general horror to remember that a large proportion of the victims must have died without even knowing it. One second they were laughing, talking, bargaining. The next they were asphyxiated or reduced to ashes as you have seen a small fly disappear in an incandescent gas flame. This, however, is what I learned afterward. At that moment I was only aware of a frantic pace uphill, over a rough stony road, and with my pedals working as I had never before worked them. While behind me I saw purgatory let loose, striving hard to overtake me. I just knew that a sea of fire was filling the valley from end to end, and that its heat scorched my face as I urged on my bicycle in abject terror. At this point, I will admit, my panic was purely personal. I was too much engaged in the engrossing sense of my own pressing danger to be vividly alive to the public catastrophe. I did not even think of Ethel and the children. But when I reached the hill by Hedzer Church, a neat, small building, whose shell still stands, though scorched and charred by the edge of the desert, I was able to pause for half a minute to recover my breath and to look back upon the scene of the first disaster. It was a terrible, and yet, I felt even then, a beautiful sight, beautiful with the awful and unearthly beauty of a great forest fire, or a mighty conflagration in some crowded city. The whole river valley, up which I looked, was one sea of fire. Barriers of red-hot lava formed themselves for a moment now and again where the outer edge or vanguard of the inundation had cooled a little on the surface by exposure, and over these temporary dams fresh cataracts of white-hot material poured themselves afresh into the valley beyond it. After a while, as the deeper portion of basalt was pushed out, all was white alike. So glorious it looked in the morning sunshine that one could hardly realize the appalling reality of that sea of molten gold. One might almost have imagined a splendid triumph of the scene-painter's art. Did one not know that it was actually a river of fire, overwhelming, consuming, and destroying every object before it in its devastating progress? I tried vaguely to discover the source of the disaster. Looking straight upstream past Bourne End and Marlow, I descried with bleared and dazzled eyes a whiter mass than any, glowing fiercely in the daylight like an electric light, 
and filling up the narrow gorge of river towards Hurley and Henley. I recollected at once that this portion of the valley was not usually visible from Hedzer Hill, and almost without thinking of it I instinctively guessed the reason why it had become so now. It was the centre of disturbance. The earth's crust, just there, had bulged upwards slightly, till it cracked and gaped to emit the basalt. Looking harder, I could make out, though it was like looking at the sun, that the glowing white dome-shaped mass, as of an electric light, was the molten lava as it gurgled from the mouth of the vast fissure. I say vast, because so it seemed to me, though, as everybody now knows, the actual gap where the earth opened measures no more than eight miles across, from a point near what was once Shiplake Ferry to the site of the old lime kilns at Marlow. Yet when one saw the eruption actually taking place, the colossal scale of it was what most appalled one. A sea of fire, eight to twelve miles broad, in the familiar Thames Valley, impressed and terrified one a thousand times more than a sea of fire ten times as vast in the nameless wilds of Western America. I could see dimly, too, that the flood spread in every direction from its central point, both up and down the river. To right and left, indeed, it was soon checked and hemmed in by the hills about Wargrave and Menmenem, but downward it had filled the entire valley as far as Cookham and beyond, while upward it spread in one vast glowing sheet toward Reading and the flats by the confluence of the Kennet. I did not then know, of course, that this gigantic natural dam or barrier was later on to fill up to the whole low-lying level, and so block the course of the two rivers as to form those twin expanses of inland water, Lake Newbury and Lake Oxford. Tourists, who now look down on still summer evenings, where the ruins of Magdalen and of Merton may be dimly descried through the pale green depths, their broken masonry picturesquely overgrown with tangled water-weeds, can form but a little idea of the terrible scene which that peaceful bank presented while the incandescent lava was pouring forth in a scorching white flood towards the doomed district. Merchants who crowd the busy quays of those mushroom cities, which have sprung up with greater rapidity than Chicago or Johannesburg, on the indented shore where the new lakes abut upon the Berkshire chalk downs, have half forgotten the horror of the intermediate time when the waters of the two rivers rose slowly, slowly, day after day, to choke their valleys and overwhelm some of the most glorious architecture in Britain. But though I did not know, and could not then foresee, the remoter effects of the great fire-flood in that direction, I saw enough to make my heart stand still within me. It was with difficulty that I grasped my bicycle. My hands trembled so fiercely. I realized that I was a spectator of the greatest calamity which had befallen a civilized land within the ken of history. I looked southward along the valley in the direction of Maidenhead. And yet it did not occur to me that the catastrophe was anything more than a local flood, though even as such it would have been one of unexampled vastness. My imagination could hardly conceive that London itself was threatened. In those days one could not grasp the idea of the destruction of London. I only thought just at first it will go on towards Maidenhead. Even as I thought it, I saw a fresh and fiercer gush of fire well out from the central gash, and flow still faster than ever down the centre of the valley, over the hardening layer already cooling on its edge by contact with the air and soil. 
This new outburst fell in a mad cataract over the end or van of the last, and instantly spread like water across the level expanse between the Cliveden Hills and the opposite range at Pinckney's. I realized with a throb that it was advancing toward Windsor. Then a wild fear chilled through me. If Windsor, why not Staines and Chertsey and Hounslow? If Hounslow, why not London? In a second I remembered Ethel and the children. Hitherto the immediate danger of my own position alone had struck me. The fire was so near, the heat of it rose up in my face and daunted me. But now I felt I must make a wild dash to warn, not London, no, frankly, I forgot those millions, but Ethel and my little ones. In that thought, for the first moment, the real vastness of the catastrophe came home to me. The Thames Valley was doomed. I must ride for dear life if I wished to save my wife and children. I mounted again, but found my shaking feet could hardly work the pedals. My legs were one jelly. With a frantic effort, I struck off inland in the direction of Burnham. I did not think my way out definitely. I hardly knew the topography of the district well enough to form any clear conception of what route I must take in order to keep to the hills and avoid the flood of fire that was deluging on the lowlands. But by pure instinct, I believe, I set my face Londonwards along the rim of the chalk downs. In three minutes I had lost sight of the burning flood, and was deep among green lanes and under shadowy beaches. The very contrast frightened me. I wondered if I was going mad. It was all so quiet. One could not believe that scarce five miles off from that devastating sheet of fire, birds were singing in the sky, and men toiling in the fields as if nothing had happened. Near Lambourne Wood I met a brother cyclist, just about to descend the hill. A curve in the road hid the valley from him. I shouted aloud, For heaven's sakes, don't go down! There is danger! Danger! He smiled and looked back at me. I can take any hill in England, he answered. It's not the hill, I burst out. There has been an eruption, a fissure eruption at Marlow, great floods of fire, and all the valley is filled with burning lava. He stared at me derisively. Then his expression changed of a sudden. I suppose he saw I was white-faced and horror-stricken. He drew away as if alarmed. Go back to Colney Hatch, he cried, pedaling faster, and rode hastily down the hill, as if afraid of me. I have no doubt he must have ridden into the very midst of the flood, and been scorched by its advance, before he could check his machine on so sudden a slope. Between Lambourne Wood and Burnham I did not see the fire flood. I rode on at full speed among the green hills and meadows. Here and there I passed a laboring man on the road. More than one looked up at me and commented on the oppressive heat, but none of them seemed to be aware of the fate that was overtaking their own homes close by in the valley. I told one or two, but they laughed and gazed after me as if I were a madman. I grew sick of warning them. They took no heed of my words, but went on upon their way as if nothing out of the common were happening to England. On the edge of the down, near Burnham, I caught sight of the valley again. Here people were just awaking to what was taking place near them. Half the population was gathered on the slope, looking down with wonder on the flood of fire, which had now just turned the corner of the hills by Taplow. Silent terror was the prevailing type of expression. But when I told them I had seen the lava bursting forth from the earth in a white dome above Marlow, they laughed me to scorn. 
and when I assured them I was pushing forward in hot haste to London, they answered, London, it won't never get as far as London. That was the only place on the hills, as is now well known, where the flood was observed long enough beforehand to telegraph and warn the inhabitants of the great city. But nobody thought of doing it. And I must say, even if they had done so, there is not the slightest probability that the warning would have attracted the least attention in our ancient metropolis. Men on the stock exchange would have made jests about the slump and proceeded to buy and sell as usual. I measured with my eye the level plain between Burnham and Slough, calculating roughly with myself whether it should have time to descend upon the well-known road from Maidenhead to London by Coldenbrook and Hounslow. I advise those who are unacquainted with the topography of this district before the eruption to follow out my route on a good map of the period. But I recognized in a moment that this course would be impossible. At the rate that the flood had taken to progress from Cookham Bridge to Taplow, I felt sure it would be upon me before I reached Upton or Ditton Park at the outside. It is true the speed of the advance might slacken somewhat as the lava cooled, and strange to say, so rapidly do realities come to be accepted in one's mind, that I caught myself thinking this thought in the most natural manner, as if I had had all my life long been accustomed to the ways of fissure eruptions. But on the other hand, the lava might well out faster and hotter than before, as I had already seen it do more than once, and I had no certainty even that it would not rise to the level of the hills on which I was standing. You who read this narrative nowadays take it for granted, of course, that the extent and height of the inundation was bound to be exactly what you know it to have been. We at the time could not guess how high it might rise and how large an area of the country it might overwhelm and devastate. Was it to stop at the Chilterns or to go north to Birmingham, York, and Scotland? Still, in my trembling anxiety to warn my wife and children, I debated with myself whether I should venture down into the valley and hurry along the main road with a wild burst for London. I thought of Ethel, alone in our little home at Bayswater, and almost made up my mind to risk it. At that moment I became aware that the road to London was already crowded with carriages, carts, and cycles, all dashing at a mad pace unanimously toward London. Suddenly a fresh wave turned the corner by Taplow and Maidenhead Bridge, and began to gain upon them visibly. It was an awful sight. I cannot pretend to describe it. The poor creatures on the road, men and animals alike, rushed wildly, despairingly on. The fire took them from behind, and one by one, before the actual sea reached them, I saw them shrivel and melt away in the fierce white heat of the advancing inundation. I could not look at it any longer. I certainly could not descend and court instant death. I felt that my one chance was to strike across the Downs by Stoke Pogies and Uxbridge and then try the line of Northern Heights to London. Oh, how fiercely I pedaled! At Farnham Royal, where again nobody seemed to be aware what had happened, a rural policeman tried to stop me for frantic riding. I tripped him up and rode on. Experience had taught me it was no use telling those who had not seen it of the disaster. A little beyond, at the entrance to a fine park, a gatekeeper attempted to shut a gate in my face, exclaiming that the road was private. I saw that it was the only practicable way, without descending to the valley, and I made up my mind that this was no time for trifling. 
I am a man of peace, but I lifted my fist and planted it between his eyes. Then, before he could recover from his astonishment, I had mounted again and ridden across the park, while he ran after me in vain, screaming to the men in the pleasure-grounds to stop me. But I would not be stopped, and I emerged on the road once more at Stoke Pogies. Near Galley Hill, after a long and furious ride, I reached the descent to Uxbridge. Was it possible to descend? I glanced across, once more by pure instinct, for I had never visited the spot before, towards where I saw the Thames must run. A great white cloud hung over it. I saw what that cloud must mean. It was the steam of the river, where the lava had sucked it up and made it seethe and boil suddenly. I had not noticed this white fleece of steam at Cookham, though I did not guess why till afterwards. In the narrow valley where the Thames ran between hills, the lava flowed over it all at once, bottling the steam beneath. And it is this imprisoned steam that gave rise in time to the subsequent series of appalling earthquakes to supply forecasts of which is now the chief duty of the seismologer royal. Whereas in the open plain the basalt advanced more gradually and in a thinner stream, and therefore turned the whole mass of water into white cloud as soon as it reached each bend of the river. At the time, however, I had no leisure to think out all this. I only knew by such indirect signs that the flood was still advancing and, therefore, that it would be impossible for me to proceed towards London by the direct route via Uxbridge and Hanwell. If I meant to reach town, as we called it familiarly, I must descend to the valley at once, pass through Uxbridge streets as fast as I could, make a dash across the plain, by what I afterwards knew to be Hillington, I saw it then as a nameless village, and aim at a house-crowned hill, which I only learned later was Harrow, but which I felt sure would enable me to descend upon London by Hampstead or Highgate. I am no strategist, but in a second, in that extremity, I picked out these points, feeling dimly sure they would lead me home to Ethel and the children. The town at Uxbridge, whose place you can still find marked on many maps, lay in a valley of a small river, a confluent of the Thames. Up this valley it was certain that the lava stream must flow, and indeed, at the present day, the basin around it is completely filled by one of the solidest and most forbidding masses of black basalt in the country. Still I made up my mind to descend and cut across the low-lying ground towards Harrow. If I failed, I felt, after all, I was but one unit more in what I now began to realize as a prodigious national calamity. I was just coasting down the hill, with Uxbridge lying snug and unconscious in the glen below me, when a slight and unimportant accident occurred, which almost rendered impossible my further progress. It was past the middle of August. The hedges were being cut, and this particular lane, bordered by a high thorn fence, was strewn with the mangled branches of the may-bushes. At any other time I should have remembered the danger and avoided them. That day, hurrying downhill for dear life and for Ethel, I forgot to notice them. The consequence was, I was pulled up suddenly by finding my front wheel deflated. This untimely misfortune almost unmanned me. I dismounted and examined the tire. It had received a bad puncture. I tried inflating again, in hopes the hole might be small enough to make the precaution sufficient. But it was quite useless. I must submit to stop and doctor up the puncture. Fortunately, I have the necessary apparatus in my wallet. I think it was the weirdest episode of all that weird ride. 
this sense of stopping impatiently, while the fiery flood still surged on toward London, in order to go through all the fiddling and troublesome little details of mending a pneumatic tire. The moment and the operation seemed so sadly out of harmony. A countryman passed by on a cart, obviously suspecting nothing. That was another point which added horror to the occasion that so near the catastrophe so very few people were even aware what was taking place beside them. Indeed, as is well known, I was one of the very few who saw the eruption during its course, and yet managed to escape from it. Elsewhere, those who tried to run before it, either to escape themselves or to warn others of the danger, were overtaken by the lava before they could reach a place of safety. I attribute this mainly to the fact that most of them continued along the high roads in the valley, or fled instinctively for shelter towards their homes, instead of making at once toward the heights and the uplands. The countryman stopped and looked at me. "'The more haste, the less speed,' he said, with proverbial wisdom. I glanced up at him and hesitated. Should I warn him of his doom, or was it useless? "'Keep up on the hills,' I said at last. "'An unspeakable calamity is happening in the valley.' Flames of fire are flowing down it, as from a great burning mountain. You will be cut off by the eruption. He stared at me blankly, and burst into a meaningless laugh. Why, you're one of them Salvation Army fellows, he exclaimed, after a short pause. You're trying to preach to me. I'm going to Uxbridge. And he continued down the hill, towards certain destruction. It was ours, I felt sure before I had patched up that puncture, though I did it by the watch in four and a half minutes. As soon as I had blown out my tire again, I mounted once more, and rode at a breakneck pace to Uxbridge. I passed down the straggling main street of the suburban town, crying aloud as I went, Run! Run to the downs! A flood of lava is rushing up the valley! To the hills! For your lives! All the Thames bank is blazing! Nobody took the slightest heed. They stood still in the street for a minute with open mouths, then they returned to their customary occupations. A quarter of an hour later there was no such place in the world as Uxbridge. I followed the main road through the village, which I have since identified as Hillington. Then I diverged to the left, partly by roads and partly by field paths, of whose exact course I am still uncertain, toward the hill at Harrow. When I reached the town I did not strive to rouse the people partly because my past experience had taught me the futility of the attempt, and partly because I rightly judged that they were safe from the inundation. For as it never quite covered the dome of St. Paul's, part of which still protrudes from the Sea of Basalt, it did not reach the level of the northern heights of London. I rode on through Harrow without one word to anybody. I did not desire to be stopped or harassed as an escaped lunatic. From Harrow I made my way tortuously along the rising ground, by the light of nature, through Wembley Park to Willesden. At Willesden, for the first time, I found to a certainty that London was threatened. Great crowds of people, in the profoundest excitement, stood watching a dense cloud of smoke and steam that spread rapidly over the direction of Shepherd's Bush and Hammersmith. They were speculating as to its meaning, but laughed incredulously when I told them what it portended. A few minutes later the smoke spread ominously toward Kensington and Paddington. That settled my fate. It was clearly impossible to descend into London, and indeed the heat now began to be unendurable. It drove us all back, almost physically. 
I thought I must abandon all hope. I should never even know what had become of Ethel and the children. My first impulse was to lie down and await the fire flood. Yet the sense of the greatness of the catastrophe seemed somehow to blunt one's own private grief. I was beside myself with fear for my darlings, but I realized that I was but one among hundreds of thousands of fathers in the same position. What was happening at that moment in the great city of five million souls we did not know. We shall never know, but we may conjecture that the end was mercifully too swift to entail much needless suffering. All at once a gleam of hope struck me. It was my father's birthday. Was it not just possible that Ethel might have taken the children up to Hampstead to wish their grandpapa many happy returns of the day? With a wild determination not to give up all for lost, I turned my front wheel in the direction of Hampstead Hill, still skirting the high ground as far as possible. My heart was on fire within me. A restless anxiety urged me to ride my hardest. As all along the route I was still just a minute or two in front of the catastrophe, people were beginning to be aware that something was taking place. More than once as I passed they asked me eagerly where the fire was. It was impossible for me to believe, by this time, that they knew nothing of an event in whose midst I seemed to have been living for months. How could I realize that all the things which had happened since I started from Cookham Bridge so long ago were really compressed into the space of a single morning? Nay, more of an hour and a half only. As I approached Wyndham Hill, a terrible sinking seized me. I seemed to totter on the brink of a precipice. Could Ethel be safe? Should I ever again see little Bertie and the baby? I pedaled on as if automatically, for all life had gone out of me. I felt my hip joint moving dry in its socket. I held my breath. My heart stood still. It was a ghastly moment. At my father's door I drew up and opened the garden gate. I hardly dared to go in, though each second was precious. I paused and hesitated. At last I turned the handle. I heard somebody within. My heart came up in my mouth. It was little Bertie's voice. Do it again, Grandpa. Do it again. It amuses Bertie. I rushed into the room. Bertie, Bertie, I cried. Is Mammy here? He flung himself upon me. Mammy, Mammy, Daddy has come home. I burst into tears. And Baby, I asked, trembling. Baby and Ethel are here, George, my father answered, staring at me. Why, my boy, what's the matter? I flung myself into a chair and broke down. In that moment of relief I felt that London was lost, but I had saved my wife and children. I did not wait for explanations. A crawling four-wheeler was loitering by. I hailed it and hurried them in. My father wished to discuss the matter, but I cut him short. I gave the driver three pounds, all the gold I had with me. Drive on, I shouted. Drive on, towards Hatfield, anywhere. He drove as he was bid. We spent that night, while Hampstead flared like a beacon, in an isolated farmhouse on the high ground in Herefordshire. For, of course, though the flood did not reach so high, it set fire to everything inflammable in its neighborhood. Next day all the world knew the magnitude of the disaster. It can only be summed up in five emphatic words. There was no more London. I have one other observation alone to make. I noticed at the time how, in my personal relief, 
I forgot for the moment that London was perishing. I even forgot that my house and property had perished. Exactly the opposite, it seemed to me, happened with most of those survivors who lost wives and children in the eruption. They moved about as in a dream, without a tear, without a complaint, helping others to provide for the needs of the homeless and houseless. The universality of the catastrophe made each man feel as though it were selfishness to attach too great an importance at such a crisis to his own personal losses. Nay, more. The burst of feverish activity and nervous excitement, I might even say enjoyment, which followed the horror, was traceable, I think, to this selfsame cause. Even grave citizens felt they must do their best to dispel the universal gloom, and they plunged accordingly into a round of dissipations which other nations thought both unseemly and un-English. It was one way of expressing the common emotion. We had all lost heart, and we flocked to the theatres to pluck up our courage. That, I believe, must be the national answer to M. Zola's strictures on our untimely levity. This people, says the great French author, which took its pleasure sadly while it was rich and prosperous, begins to dance and sing above the ashes of its capital. It makes merry by the open graves of its wives and children. What an enigma! What a puzzle! What chance of an Oedipus! Conclusion of the Thames Valley Catastrophe by Grant Allen